Hello, I'm Asia-Pacific analyst Evan Reese, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. To learn more about Stratfor Worldview, ThreatLens, or Stratfor's custom advisory services, visit us at stratfor.com. In the view of President Xi, China is just now rising to a point where it can reclaim the mantle of the old empire that was so central to Asia. They are finally putting an end to this era that began with the Opium War and the weakening and the humiliation of China. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. As the world witnesses what some refer to as a new imperial dawn for China today, we look back to the last time China wielded great power on the global stage with professor and author Stephen R. Platt. Stratfor Senior Vice President of Strategic Analysis Roger Baker and Asia-Pacific Analyst Evan Reese sit down with Platt to discuss his latest book, Imperial Twilight, The Opium War and the End of China's Last Golden Age. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Roger Baker. I'm here with Evan Reese, another one of our analysts here at Stratfor. And we have the opportunity today to talk with Professor Platt, uh, the author of Imperial Twilight. So uh, welcome, Professor Platt. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, in choosing this book, I, I noticed that in, in Imperial Twilight, you spend a lot of time talking about individuals, almost more than you do about the broader concepts of history or the, or the major aspects of what's going on in the countries around. And in many ways, it's a, it's a building up to the Opium War more than it is a story about the Opium War in and of itself. But how do you pick and choose which characters you're going to explore in this grand sweep of history? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I'm definitely drawn to the stories of individuals as a historian. I mean, it's part of my philosophy of history, but also it's just it's how I like to work and how I like to write. Getting drawn to individuals, it, you wind up rejecting a lot of them because somebody has to be they have to be interesting in their own right. And you have to have good sources on them. But in every case, they have to they have to represent something larger than themselves. They can't just be a person wandering through events. Um, but somebody who either you know, represents something very important about their time or represents something about the situation um, or somebody who is actually instrumental in the outcome of events. It's very interesting from a historian's perspective hearing about that. What I find particularly interesting about this book is the title is Imperial Twilight. It covers the late 18th and up to the mid 19th century, this period of decline for the Qing Empire, the beginning of that period of decline. We're now in a period where a lot of people are talking about an imperial dawn for China, a stepping out on the world stage once again for China. Why did you think that this period was important to cover? I know your previous work was on the Taiping, which is a little bit later. And can you tell us a little bit about the factors that caused the decline of the Qing Empire around this time? Sure. Um, yeah, there's actually, a, I mean, a few questions to answer in there. The, I mean, the causes of the decline and why this particular, you know, why this event after working on the Taiping. I mean, as far as moving back from the Taiping, one of the one of the most interesting things about the Taiping Rebellion to me, and this is the, you know, the largest civil war in human history in the middle of the 19th century. Um, and in the end, the British intervened on the side of the Qing dynasty. And part of that rationale turned out to be guilt about the opium war. 
um, that, that you know, prominent British argued that because the British had fought the Opium War in 1840, um, they had destabilized China's government, and therefore they had created the conditions where it was possible to have such a massive uprising like the Taiping. Um, therefore, it was Britain's humanitarian duty to help China put down this, this rebellion. Going back from that, I wanted to see how much that actually was the case at the time of the Opium War. We, I mean, we Chinese historians tend to think of the British, you know, rampaging around in the 19th century without a care in the world on, you know, toppling governments and taking over countries. But what I found is that there was much more debate at the time. The the war was far more controversial than it's generally made out to be. Um, and there were, again, very prominent moral voices at the time of the Opium War in Britain um, saying that this was entirely wrong and unjustified and would be a, a blight on Britain's national honor. So that's really what brought me back to that era. Um, it works well with the present. In the sense that, yes, as you said, um, people talk about a sort of a new imperial dawn for China, and China certainly tries to cultivate that. And certainly Xi Jinping tries to cultivate that, that um, in the view of the government and then especially in the view of, of President Xi, China is just now rising to a point where it can reclaim the mantle of the past, of the old, of the old empire that was so central to Asia. I mean, it's described in terms of the Opium War. that They are finally putting an end to this era that began with the Opium War and the weakening and the humiliation of China. So in that sense, looking back at this era before the Opium War, if we today are possibly living through an era where China is regaining that stature that it had in the past and we have to figure out how to get along with it, the most recent example we have of a China that had that kind of power was prior to the Opium War. Um, so looking at the pre-Opium War era and how the British and the Americans muddled their way through with a strong China can give a certain sense of how you get along or what worked then. Who knows if it'll work today, but it's really the only model we have of Western relations with a China that was not humiliated. There's an interesting aspect uh, that, that I found in the book. Obviously, there's the simplified history of the Opium War that most people know and read about in a paragraph and a half in their textbooks and all. But in some ways, uh, a lot of what seems to come from this book is the idea that there was less initially a battle between the British and the Chinese over how to conduct trade and what to trade than it really was a battle within the British camp over what foreign trade policies should be like that ended up interacting with other domestic issues that were going on in China uh, at the time. Absolutely. I mean, it almost by accident gets turned into a national war of Britain versus China. Um, but for generations, the British government had been very clear and consistent in telling its merchants who went to trade in China that they had to follow China's rules. They were guests in the country. They had to follow the laws. Um, the British government would not back them up if they broke the laws there. Um, and the incredible irony of how this era ends um, with the British government actually going to war over opium dealers, you know, who were breaking every law in the books and smuggling drugs into China. Um, it's extremely counterintuitive um, and it breaks a very longstanding pattern of the British government essentially remaining hands off um, as regards the China trade. Also, in terms of the relationship between Britain and China through this whole era, the relations worked best when they were in the hands of merchants at the city of Canton, which was the one which was the one city where the British were allowed to trade. Those merchants who had close experience of each other um, generally worked quite well together. And the problems tended to arise when diplomats came in or government officials, um, people who sort of represented national the national honor of Britain. Um, they were the ones who generally got themselves into trouble. 
And then after the trouble passed, then the merchants would take over again and, and it would go on that way. Um, and I think you know, China tries to promote this kind of a view of international relations today as well, that they um, they present themselves as sort of a you know, as, as a trading power and that you can trade with China and we will not try to change your government like America will. We won't make human rights demands. Obviously, they've crossed a lot of lines in recent years of things like the Belt and Road Initiative. But but in the past, the way they way China tried to present it was, you know, let trade take care of itself um, and state affairs can can step back from that. So um, and as far as this, uh, the divisions within the British camp, Really, it was a division between you know, different kinds of merchants who were doing business in China. I mean, there were always merchants um, who were frustrated about being confined to Canton, who wanted access to other ports for trade. Um, the question was, how could they possibly get it? And the general British view is that it would be completely immoral to try to get those th- sorts of things by force, that they would have to be granted willingly by the Chinese government. Um, and this war, which really begins as a means of protecting these uh, these opium traders who have a who are, suffer a crackdown really transforms into a war to open ports and to open China to free trade the remarkable thing about that though is that even the people in the government the people in parliament um, who supported this war none of them talked about opening ports nobody could justify a war on the grounds of forcing open trade it was just i mean it was a contradiction of terms to talk about a war for the sake of free trade. You can't force somebody to trade with you. But ironically, that's how it all that's what it turned into by the end. It seems to set a bit of a precedent for what the U.S. would follow in Japan a few years later. But also at the time, it it creates an interesting dynamic that the origins of the U.S.-China relationship are much more uh, cooperative and and seen as friendly, particularly on the international stage, and particularly coming out of the end of the war, where the U.S. goes in and you know piggybacks off the back of what the British did, but uh, expresses itself as being, of course, a, a non-aggressive uh, power and sets that tone for quite a while in its its relation with Asia. Uh, where today we see a very different relationship between the United States and the Chinese that has emerged as the United States has, in some ways, taken on that British role of the global hegemon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if in in terms of looking for analogies, certainly the Americans are playing the role today that the British played then as as sort of the dominant Western power engaged with China. Um, looking back to the 19th century, though, you're absolutely right that the I mean, the origins of the U.S.-China relationship were much more cooperative and positive in many ways than the relationship between China and Great Britain. Um, the Americans generally behaved themselves better. They were still involved in the opium trade, um, but they did not go to war over it and they wouldn't have been able to. Um, really, all through the 19th century, the, the Americans tend towards neutrality. They tend towards remaining hands off. It's partly because they don't have the power to project in Asia to make demands like that. But I think it's really, I mean, it's the Boxer Rebellion in, in, you know, at the opening of the 20th century, which is the first time you have the appearance of U.S. Marines in China um, after a long legacy of French and British um, uh, military actions there. So, I mean, in terms of talking about the long history of the United States and China, I think one thing that gets, if not ignored, it doesn't get emphasized nearly as much as it should, which is that in the 19th century, the United States was not the same as Britain, Great Britain. Um, they were not the same as France. And the longer history of the United States and China has a large number of very positive examples of relationships between individuals, um, you know, more positive policies um, that could be talked about in, dip- in diplomatic negotiations today. 
We'll get back to our conversation with author Stephen Platt in just a moment. But if you want to gain greater insights into the parallels with China on the global stage today and the latest developments, be sure to visit us at Stratfor Worldview. Our analyses on the economic growth of China and its evolving role internationally are all collected under the theme China in Transition. We also have a special eight-part series on framing China's future. We'll include links to both of those in the show notes. And if you're not already a Stratfor Worldview member, you can register for free limited access or subscribe for unlimited access to our ongoing assessments, guidance, and forecasting on the key geopolitical trends shaping tomorrow. You can learn more about individual, team, or enterprise access at worldview.stratfor.com/slash/subscribe. Now back to our conversation with author Stephen Platt about Imperial Twilight, the Opium War, and the end of China's last golden age. Throughout this period, you have Britain emerging on the world stage, becoming the preeminent sea power. You detail how the Napoleonic Wars, you know, leave Britain as a preeminent power in Europe as well, and then you have Chinese decline at the same time. You also have the two economies pretty deeply intertwined in terms of the trade relationship. With those two dynamics interacting, was the collision that happened during the Opium War was it inevitable? And can you talk a little bit about the off ramps? that you detail throughout the book that could have pushed it in a totally different direction. Yeah, I mean, the war as it happened easily could have been avoided. I and mean, it barely squeaked past Parliament as it was. I mean, it, out of 522 votes, it, it got through by a margin of nine. So, you know, if five lawmakers had voted otherwise, the war would have been terminated. Um, the question of whether the two countries were destined for a collision Nothing had necessarily set them on that road. Again, you had had these merchants howling for, you know, British merchants howling for blood in China for generations, trying to drum up some kind of an excuse for a war. Linza Shu, unknown to himself, gave them that excuse when he led the crackdown at Canton against uh, against trade. That crackdown wasn't necessarily meant to happen in the way that it did either. Um, when Linza Shu cracked down on the British opium traders. He went against the advice of his contemporaries. He was not told to do that by the emperor. Um, he was very much a northerner who, or, well, he's originally from Fujian, but he had been serving in central China. He didn't have experience with foreigners. And those officials who did have experience with the British had warned him generally, don't bring the British into this problem of cracking down on opium. Make it a domestic crackdown. If the Chinese don't buy opium, the British won't be able to sell it. And it was very much his own sort of impetuousness and his own pride that led him to target the British opium traders directly and, and ultimately provoked this war. In terms of how this era might have come out, if you look at the broader span of the 19th century, you know, obviously there is the Opium War and then there is the Arrow War or the Second Opium War, which is basically a continuation of the first when the trade concessions don't go as well as Britain thought. But following that, you start seeing glimpses of a more cooperative relationship. When Britain helped the Qing dynasty to put down the Taiping Rebellion, that was active support for the dynasty that they had fought the Opium War against. Um, later on, they would gladly provide uh, advisors, uh, teachers, uh, military equipment. The Americans did, too. And I think China's decline was happening whether or not the British were around selling opium. Opium became a, a really the most visible sign of the country's decline. But the issues of bureaucratic corruption, of overpopulation, of a declining economy, these were very much internally driven. If the Opium War had not happened, something like the Taiping Rebellion still very much could have happened just due to China's in, internal problems. 
And if that had happened, perhaps the next step in Chinese-British relations is they would have gotten to that cooperative stage more quickly. And, you know, China may have recognized the value of having more open trade with the British. Um, I think Chinese historians these days, looking back on this era, they, you know, they have every reason to, you know, they, I mean, there, there's nothing to excuse the behavior of the British in the Opium War. But Chinese historians looking back can also observe that if the dynasty had finally broken down and opened more, opened more ports or expanded the trade, that it would have been, to, it would have been to the country's benefit. It would have been to the benefit of the economy. So this, I mean, at least in my sense, I don't see this as being in any way tending inevitably towards war. It could have, it could have opened up in very different ways, depending on different people and, and different events. As a, as a historian, what do you see as the role of history in the present. For example, as you go through this uh, book and the discussion in this book, you have issues of the drug trade and whether that's something to be controlled by the consumers or the producers. You have cross-border issues. You have questions of proper trade models. You have questions of whether countries should be allowed to set their own internal rules or not, or if there is an international standard that they should uh, follow. All issues that we, we still deal with today and that were dealt with in the years before this issue. How significant is is history to understanding the present and to making proper choices? I would say that I'm certainly not the kind of historian who believes that history holds lessons that teach us how to act in the present. That's a, that's a very, very idealized vision of history. Um, I think the president, the present is extremely different from the past. Um, you know, the United States now is not Britain in the 19th century. China now is not China of the Qing dynasty. But the place where history becomes so important is how it's, re- is in how it's remembered. Um, people will take lessons from it. They will interpret events in a certain way. And those lessons and those interpretations will, in many cases, guide their actions in the present. Um, and in the case of the Opium War, there's nothing more important in my, to my mind than how this war is remembered in China today, um, how it's used in textbooks, how it's used by the government as really the foundation of modern Chinese nationalism, that it's become you know, the war where the British came and forced drugs down the throats of the helpless Chinese. And everything since then has been a matter of China building itself up in order to avenge that humiliation. Uh, Xi Jinping re- constantly refers to the Opium War. More. And the, it used to be the 170 year struggle, now the 175 year struggle of the Chinese people to regain the power they used to have. That is his vision of the Chinese dream. So in that sense, the history of the Opium War is very much alive today in China. Um, it's, it's in the media, it's in the minds of the educated public, it's in the, in the minds of politicians. And the way that we understand this war can therefore help to shape how relations turn out today. And I happen to have, while a very critical view of this war, the fact is I don't think that the British of that era should be seen in quite such black and white terms. There were great villains on the British side. There were also strong moral voices um, talking about China's, there were British voices talking about China's sovereignty, talking about respect for them, um, those who tried to prevent the war from happening. It's just as important today for those kinds of people to be remembered when we talk about China's relations with the West, that it's not just a strict um, you know, positive negative thing where you have the evil Westerners. China was knocked down. Now they have to come back with a huge chip on their shoulder that it didn't exactly play out that way. Similarly, um, the decline of China in the 19th century, um, really, the British get scapegoated for that a lot. 
as if the British came along and weakened China. That China was fine and well, and then along came the British with their opium, and then suddenly China was weak and poor and 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 being bullied around. Opium played a role, but the British really t- just took advantage of the weakening of China. Um, they didn't they didn't cause it. They helped to hasten it. Um, they they took full advantage of it. But the problems that China then faced are in some ways similar to problems that China is still facing today in terms of bureaucratic corruption, in terms of trying to maintain control over over an enormous population. So history echoes through the present. It doesn't determine anything, but the discussion of it is very important for those people who do take lessons from the past, even though I myself think that all such lessons need to be taken with a big grain of salt. Well, Steve, I'd really like to thank you for your time today. This is a, a, a very interesting discussion and, and a very different take than we normally see on the Opium War, particularly in uh, that it spends a lot of time in giving us the context that leads up to the conflict rather than just focusing on the conflict. Well, thanks for having me here. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. That wraps up this episode of the Stratfall Podcast. If you're interested in picking up a copy of Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt, you'll find a link in the show notes. And if you'd like more insights into what's happening in China today, or more importantly, what's to come, be sure to read our collected assessments, series, and ongoing analysis at Stratfall Worldview. If you're not already a Stratfall Worldview member, you can sign up for our free newsletter or learn more about complete access to our analysis through individual, team, and enterprise memberships at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that reveal the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor.com.